What's up? This is Ralph Trezvan. You're listening to Reviews and Done with my dude, Derek Dunn. Keep it locked, fam. What's going on, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. My guest today is Mr. Corey Clark, who competed in Season 2 of American Idol. Now, being friends with this brother on Facebook, you know, he's a very interesting brother. He doesn't hold back. You know, he's always about positivity and bringing light to what's going on in this country. So I hope you guys are looking forward to talking to him and learning some stuff about him. So welcome to the line, Corey Clark. How are you doing today, Thank sir? Thank you. I'm doing good, my brother. How are you doing? Blessed, man. I'm just happy to, you know, chop it up with you, see what you're about, and, you know, hear about some of your early childhood stories and the famous folks you ran into that folks might not know about, as well as, um, you know, what you're working on now. I understand you got some new music coming out soon for your fans. We're going to get to all of that. So just go ahead and chop it up and, you know, let's tell your truth. Let's do it. So who were your early inspirations growing up? I, I, I really have to say that my main musical inspirations were my folks, man, my mom and my dad. They both, uh, you know, they they had uh, regular jobs and whatnot like every other American, but they were uh, uh, working musicians as well, and that's how they ended up meeting. And that, that their love for music, uh, bringing them together, essentially uh, transferred over to myself and now to one of my younger siblings as well. So I, I'd have to credit my parents with not not pushing me, not pushing me to do it, but but just having me around good music, you know, soulful, feel-good music, uh, you know, at all times, and, and really just being around the live elements that, that uh, I grew up around. It just gave me a, uh inside look into uh, uh, the 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 heartbeat of, of how music should be. And, and it was attractive to me as a kid. So uh, I, I feel pretty much naturally I gravitated towards that. Uh, you know, there's other artists that people know, major artists and whatnot, that that had uh, mitigating influences after that initial uh, influence by my folks, such as, you know, like Michael Jackson and Prince. Uh, I love them. Donnie Hathaway, Boyz II Men. Uh, uh, shoot, uh, Drew Hill. A lot of a lot of the guy groups. A lot of the guy groups. I liked a lot of the R and B guy groups growing up too. Even the older ones, the Temptations and whatnot. Because uh, it was just something about the camaraderie that those guys shared and the ups and the downs that that also attracted me to officially diving into the pool of music and and starting off the way I started off. So yeah, that's uh, that's that, that that's my influence. I got credit the moms and the pops for the most part. What is the first concert you can recall attending? Uh, first concert I recall attending, uh, like in in person as a as a patron or as a performer, as a fan. As a fan, uh, the first concert I remember attending was actually the Budweiser Superfest in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, in 1995. I was. 14, getting ready to be 15, and uh, Boys to Men were performing, uh, TLC was performing, and uh, Montel Jordan was performing as well. That was the uh, first concert I remember attending, and I used to, I used to do this thing where I, I kind of put myself in places. At that age, I was very just 
uh, ambitious, I guess is the best word. And, and um, I wouldn't let wouldn't let a no stop me or the fact that I didn't have money or fancy cars or record deals or whatever stopped me from, you know, pursuing what it was I wanted to accomplish. So I would find myself uh, very often uh, uh, being able to get backstage and talk to the movers and the movers and the players of the of the whole show, you know, the people that are putting it on and, and you know, trying to pitch myself or, you know, the uh, the uh, musical group I was in at the time to to be able to get put on the put on a bill. So I always and it started with this particular concert. So I found myself just backstage. I I went to the concert eight hours early with no tickets, no money to get no tickets, nothing, just just a plan to somehow get backstage and talk to boys to men and their management and, and try to help get my uh, the musical group I was in at the time a record deal. And I showed up talking to, uh, it was at the MGM Grand in Vegas, and I showed up and I went to the uh, backstage doors where they had a security guard posted. And uh, I, I figured, you know, if I, if I can uh, show this guy that, that uh, you know, I'm a good person, maybe he'll let me you know, sneak backstage so I can accomplish my goals of meeting boys and men and sat there and talked to a guy for several hours. He was a cool guy, never let me backstage, and I actually ended up switching over uh, uh, duty. You know, like he went from where the post was that I was talking to him to somewhere else in the building, and then a new guy came. So now I had to start the whole process over, and here it was getting close to concert time. So I was a little – I was a little – uh disenchanted by that so I, I was like this is not working I gotta try something else and so I turn I walk away and as I'm walking away in the in the lobby of the auditorium there's a you know utility closets and whatnot one of this guy just randomly pops out of this utility closet he's got an arm full of just just uh items that some of which he starts dropping on the floor so just you know being a, a young kid of, of you know, some type of ethics and morals. I decided to help the dude pick it up. And uh, he's like, hey, man, could you just help me help me carry this stuff out to the front little uh, little lawn place out here out in front of the doors? And I was like, yeah, sure. No, I don't know who this guy is, but, yeah, I'll help you carry it. So I carried out the, the stuff with him out to the uh, out to the little lawn area, and we start – he's asked me to set it up. If I set it up for him and help him set it up, then he'd give me some backstage passes and tickets to the show. And I was like, yeah, well, shit, all right, cool. So we start setting it up. It's the big old gigantic air inflated uh, Budweiser Superfest can, you know, that, that they got out in front of those types of uh, events and whatnot. He ends up yeah. being one of the uh, one of the guys that works for Budweiser. So uh, set that up. Ended up getting backstage passes and front row seats to the show. Didn't get to meet boys and men, unfortunately. Uh, they were a little bit more high security than I had expected at the time. This is when two was out and all that, so they were super hot. But I did get a chance to meet TLC. I did, fortunately and unfortunately, get a chance to meet Montel Jordan. I also got a chance to meet uh, Mike Tyson backstage. So it was pretty cool. Dope, dope. Very uh, interesting story. My first concert was uh, the New Edition Home Again Tour, February 22nd, 1997, on a Saturday. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a diehard any fan. And I actually had a chance to see them all six, after the um, New Mexico incident that happened in the movie, that was yeah. after my show. Yeah, so that was, okay. that was actually... Yeah. It's crazy because, like, in the movie, they made it seem like 
you know, they have the New Mexico incident and they all just kind of went their own ways. No, they were still touring well into the summer of 97. After yes, the they were. Thing. You just had to, you know, yes, you had guys for a creative license for me. And I, that was definitely my first concert. I still remember, and I actually kept the legacy going with my own son. His first concert was, um, well, his first concert was Earth, Wind, and Fire in Chicago when he was like, I think maybe three or four. He was passed out before they even came out on stage. So when uh, <laughs> when Bobby Brown and BBD toured his RBRM um, in 2018, they started that whole thing. He was yes. nine then, so I don't know, he was ten. He was ten then, so I took him to see them, and he had a ball. Yeah, I, I went to both those shows, man. The 97 yeah. concert you're talking about, I went to that in Utah. Cause I was going to high school out there. That's that was my second concert, and actually, Boys to Men was on that with them at that time as well. And then uh, the RBM show, I saw that uh, when when uh, when they did that in Tennessee at the Municipal Auditorium. Yeah, that was a whole so show too. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan. It, it was a good show. Like I think ours was like the first or second show. Like I liked the songs. They they just they seemed like they were just getting back into it, and they were kind of lackluster with the energy and i'm not dissing none of them because i you know i i know a couple of them personally and they've all been cool uh to me as well so i'm not dissing them i was just it just looked like they were just kind of that was like a warm-up type of show or something they were just getting back at it you know what i'm saying they weren't like full flares like mm, 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 getting it you know it was just kind of like going through the motions at the time but it was still a good show they had tony braxton with them it was pretty okay, good now, the thing is you know, you being in the industry, you can, you know, being in the industry, actually being a professional singer, you know that sometimes you're going to have an off night, and us yeah. as, um, you know, John Q. Public, we're quick to throw shade and quick to diss, you know, other artists. I remember um, back in 2007, Robin Sick did, he did a, a show at the BET Awards, and mm-hmm. he, he, just had off, he had an off night, and so, like, oh. he was getting thrown up here in D.C., you know, on the radio, and then, like a few days, a couple of days later, it was his. Um, he was opening for Beyonce on her B-Day tour, and he killed it on that show. And I'm like, yeah, you know, he just had an off night. An off night. Yeah, that's it. You can't be yeah, on man. every single every night. time. You're gonna have an off night. It happens to. I'm sure it's happened to Prince. I'm sure it's happened to Michael. You know, when they were here, you just have an yeah. off night. Where you can't give 110 percent. And sometimes it ain't you. Sometimes it might be somebody in your band or your crew, you know, that does something that messes up, but you got, you know, the show must go on. You can't stop and be like, oh, my bad, this fool, he messed up, or I messed up. You just got to keep rolling, you know. We'll get it tighter next time, you know what I'm saying? I love Robin Thicke, too. He's got a dope voice. And he's a good songwriter, too. I totally agree. So one of your first stage experiences as a singer was singing Back up for Barry Manilow with your family. How was that experience? Oh man, that's 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 the uh, that's a very memorable experience, and I was very thankful to uh, got me op- to have gotten the opportunity. Man, it was um, you know that that blossomed into a lot of other things that you know I weren't even foreseen at that time. But you know that that was a situation through my mom and my dad where they had already been hired to sing. Uh, back up for Barry Manilow every time he came to Las Vegas. Uh, just, uh, they they were part of the like six or seven man choir that would sing back up for him. So uh, two years in a row they did that. And then the third year, 
one of the, uh, I guess, because I was only 13 at the time, one of the ladies that normally did it with them wasn't able to do it or had moved away, something of that nature, and they needed somebody to fill in for it. And I, at that time, I was a, uh, uh, well, you know, I'm still first tenor, but I could hit a couple little soprano notes here and there back then. So uh, I went in and auditioned for Deborah Bird, and uh, my folks took me to the audition, and she hired me on the spot. She's like, can you learn? Can you learn these, you know, these like 15, 20 songs uh, in like the next week? I was like, yeah, of course. Learn your parts anyway. Learn the songs, learn your parts, watch these videos. I was like, of course. It's just like watching tape for football, you know what I'm saying? So I took it home and practiced it, and my folks took me in, and we, we knocked it out. I uh, had a great, great time doing it and uh, just kind of watching how how uh, Barry Manilow, I mean, he's, he wasn't a big artist to me as far as what my taste and personal uh, taste and, and, and uh, uh, goals were as far as what my musical stylings were going to be. Uh, but Barry Manilow is the uh, largest selling adult contemporary artist of all time, so that was a huge, huge opportunity that I didn't really understand the um, importance of at the time when my parents, you know, bestowed it upon me and, and Deborah Bird hired me, but I was thankful to have gotten it and um, watching how, the crowds, uh, you know, reacted to this man every night, singing hit song after hit song that, you know, they had come to know and love and they're paying all this money to see him just do what he was doing. That was kind of the, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, I had influenced by my parents, like I said, but they were never really pushing me that direction. I was uh, highly often into sports at the time. So uh, once I saw that, just something like light went off, switch went off in my head, and I was like, I want to do this. So I, that led to me uh, going out and actually diving into the uh, the actual music industry and trying my hand at at a career of being a musician. Uh, Deborah Bird actually ended up becoming the uh, the vocal coach uh, for American Idol several years uh, later after the Barry Manilow stuff, and uh, you know it was, it was cool seeing her during that experience as well. It kind of made me feel a lot more comfortable, a lot more at home, knowing that somebody was there that already knew I could do what it was I was there to do. She did, you know, we, we'd rehearse and she wouldn't even have me rehearse. Like, like everybody would go in to rehearse their solo songs before, you know, a couple days before the performance and whatnot. And because she had worked with me at such a young age and, and I had tackled the job very well back then, and she had full faith and credit in my abilities, and I'll come in. She'd be like, "You, you know what it is you want to do? How you want to do it?" And I said, "Yes, I do." And she's all right. And she'd sign off. Have a good day. I wouldn't even have to rehearse with her. You know, she'd send me back out. So I thought that was pretty cool. I kind of earned her respect because she's, you know, a very formidable musician and teacher herself. So to get her respect and to have her confidence that she knows you're going to go out there and handle your business, that so much so that she doesn't even have to really, uh, you know, fine-tune what you're doing or, or be hands-on at all, really. It, 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 it gave me another level of confidence that, that probably a lot of the other other performers uh, didn't have at the time, so I was thankful for that, too. But that, that one opportunity grew into a lot of things for me, man. And that, that I'd say that one opportunity is the one that kind of changed the course of my life and sent me down the path that, that uh, you know, I'm currently still still on. 
A lot of people might be surprised to learn that you were once in a group with a pre-fame Neo called Envy. What do you remember about that time, and how was the group Envy formed? Oh, wow. So uh, I guess taking the latter question first, since it's the easiest, uh, the, the group was I, – I, I formed the group. I started the group. Uh, it was originally called the Playboys. I was 14 years old, and uh, this was after – the Barry Manilow performances and whatnot. And uh, I started it with several cats. When I say several, I mean there was several cats. It was like six or seven seven of us in this original group, and everybody was basically from my apartment complex. It was uh, Manny Rodriguez, uh, Nate Brown, Sammy Wiley, uh, myself. And then there was two two guys, two other guys. So there were six of us. One one guy I went to school with, Barry York. I went to school with him at Bonanza High School in Las Vegas. And then uh, he had a friend that went to a different school. Uh, I forget Billy's last name, but his name was Billy. And uh, we that was the original group, Playboy. So we uh, started trying to. Uh, put put songs together, start trying to perform around the city and whatnot, and uh, ran into this guy named Corey Stone Paxton. Or no, actually, I didn't run into him. Uh, Billy's dad, I think, uh, wanted to introduce us to him or something of that nature. And uh, he he looked at the group and thought that we could use some work, but he also thought we could use a, a better name, you know. So uh, he kicked around the name a little bit. We all kicked around a few names, but there was a group that uh, he used to manage, uh, I guess his nephews or whatever that had fallen apart, and they were called Envy. And uh, that was one of his suggestions that, that set in with this. So we settled on we settled on Envy, and then uh, uh, I went to uh, the Sammy Davis Jr. Pavilion in Lorenzi Park in Las Vegas uh, during the summertime. They had a talent show that was going on that we, we weren't a part of. Uh, but, again, I was I was scoping the scene for record execs and people in the music industry, somebody to try to uh, work some type of deal out with for myself and for the group that I had now started, which these guys didn't show up with me either, so I was there by myself, <laughs> which is kind of, it's kind of always how it was. But uh, needless to say, it was a Sony uh, Records um, talent show. And I went, and there were some artists that were performing and whatnot, and during one of the breaks, I saw some of the judges get up from the table, and I had peeped out who the Sony rep was throughout the performance because they called him out, and he stood up and waved. So I went, and I sat down in the chair that had opened up next to him briefly and started just, just started talking to him. I didn't ask him if he's busy. I was like, hey, yo, sir, you know, his, his name was Daryl Ross. I was like, hey, Mr. Ross, uh, you know, my name is Corey Clark. I'm, I got a started group. We're called Playboy, or by this time we're called Envy. You know, I'd like, I'd like a chance to, you know, sing for you and try to get a record deal. And uh, he's like, well, you know, where, where are you guys at? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know really right now, but, you know, I'm here on their on all of our behalf. And uh, all of a sudden I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I look or, look over my shoulder, and this big, big black dude. It turns out to be David Wallace, and uh, he's like, you're in my seat. He's the guy that brought Daryl Ross into town, apparently, for the talent show. And uh, Daryl's like, well, look, here's my card. Give me a call. You know, you got to get up out of my man's seat, but 
you know, give me a holler and then uh, try to set up a uh, audition for you and your guys. I was like, bet. Took his card, went home, told the other guys. We called uh, Daryl. He wanted to do a over-the-phone audition, basically. Like, basically, each one of y'all sing something. Can y'all sing something together was his first question. We were like, not really. We haven't really worked out <laughs> any songs to sing together, but we can all sing individually, right? This is all just dreams and ideas at this point in time, but we were collectively physically together. So, you know, we wanted to learn, we wanted to get better, and we wanted to do it under some of the ways that we had watched in some of these uh, movie bio- biographies, uh, you know, the, uh, the what is it, Five Heartbeats and the Michael Jackson movies and Purple Rain and whatnot, like everybody's climb up to the top involved, you know, practicing, getting better, getting somebody that believed in them at a label and getting a deal, getting developed, basically, and getting put out. So, he had us all sing, and we all sang about 20 seconds apiece. He's like, yeah, man, all right, look, uh, you know, some of you guys got a lot of work to do. Some of you guys are pretty good. Uh, if we're going to do this deal, you guys are going to have to work with my man, David Wallace, uh, who's, you know, he's, you guys are going to have to let him manage you guys and uh, do the artist development on you guys if you want to get this deal with me and Sony Records. So we were like, yeah, everybody's like, cool, we'll do that, no problem. Let's do it. We gave it to David Wallace. He cut four out of the six of us out the group immediately. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 uh, three out of three out of six of us. He kept he kept me, Barry, and uh, and Billy. Uh, but Billy's dad didn't like uh, David's demeanor, even though David was like a probation juvenile probation officer and shit. He just didn't like his demeanor towards us or how he treated us. So. He wanted us to keep working with this Corey Paxton guy, which, you know, he wasn't really trying to do nothing. So, uh, and we, the only way we could get the deal through Sony is if we worked with David Wallace. So that kind of X that deal out in the majority of our minds. So uh, me and Billy and uh, Barry ended up remaining in, in the uh, group Envy. And then David started replacing the members he kicked out. Uh, and he, the first replacement he made was a guy named Ray Blaylock, and, and uh, Ray Blaylock ended up being in that group uh, the longest with me out of anybody else. But I found Ray Blaylock through his brother at a uh, at a track meet up in uh, Durango. He he liked the way he said his brother had like a a boy band type of look, so he approached Ray's younger brother, thinking that he would do the group. And he's like, "Well, I can't sing, but my brother Ray can sing." So he sent Ray through. And Ray was a pretty good singer as well. And, and I kind of, I know, I know I skipped over a couple people because there ended up being about 17 different folks. And one of the main people I skipped over that I probably should have mentioned was, was uh, uh, Harry Bonner Jr., who's now, he goes by the name of Mowley B. And uh, he was my best friend in life. He was, he was also in the group for a little while. Uh, he left the group early on. Uh, he's, you know, a Mormon. His mom was a vocal teacher as well, so. From time to time, she would pull him out because she didn't agree with the direction the group was going. And uh, the first time she pulled him out is when Ray was was replaced into the group. And then uh, when Ray left the group uh, and Harry left the group again, because Harry came back, uh, Harry left the group uh, in a position where we were getting ready to do uh, Showtime at the Apollo that I had, I had arranged for us to, to appear on. Uh, down in Harlem, New York, and uh, Steve Harvey was 
he was uh, uh, the host of the show at the time. And uh, Ray's mom, I'm sorry, not Ray's mom, but uh, Harry's mom, uh, Deborah Bonner, she didn't feel comfortable with letting Harry travel with us uh, outside of the state because uh, Ray, who, who just came back into the group because we needed members to actually go on television now that we were booked to do this show, uh, Ray smoked cigarettes at the time. And uh, she didn't want Harry to get influenced to start smoking cigarettes, so she pulled him out. Harry felt bad about that, so he leaned on his uh, mom's client list. And on, out of her client list, because she's a vocal teacher, he uh, he knew Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer is what everybody else knows. Schaefer is Neo. Uh, so Harry uh, talked to Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer said he'd do the group. He was going to Las Vegas Academy at the time. And uh, Schaefer brought in another guy with him that he went to high school with, Solomon Ridge. So now it was uh, uh, Billy had gone now because his dad wasn't having it. So now it was me, Barry, uh, uh, me, Barry, Schaefer, uh, Ray, Solomon, uh, and Aaron Dodson as well. Aaron Dodson was was somebody else that Dave had put into the group and and, uh, had a lot of good stage showmanship and whatnot. Uh, uh, Barry ended up leaving the group after Barry left, so that cut us down to five. Uh, Me, Aaron, uh, Solomon, Ray, and Neil. And uh, we went, the five of us went and performed as Envy on uh, Showtime at the Apollo and uh, didn't do too good at all uh we uh first time traveling anyway first time being in new york we didn't get a chance to uh never sang with a live band before that but uh uh everybody else that was performing got a few days ahead of time i guess there's a lot of locals that are on showtime at the apollo from new york so they get a couple days to work with the band we got 30 minutes uh which was the day of our performance and they uh you know they they said they had the song but as we were getting out there uh, interviewing with Steve Harvey, they started playing playing the, the music early while we were still kind of talking to Steve and trying to go get in place uh, before they were supposed to start playing. So we rushed to Mike's. They changed the key of the song. We weren't very talented uh, as far as being able to pick up live key changes at the time. Like I said, we never worked with a band before, so we're still singing everything in the original key that we learned it in for months and the band is playing in a lower key, so it just sounded terrible. Um, you know, there there was a lot of booing going on. There were some chicks that liked it. They they, they you know, they was they was hot on us before we started singing and shit. But uh, a lot of dudes started booing. Immediately they started booing really before we even started singing a lot of the dudes because uh, Steve told everybody we were from the West Coast on Las Vegas, uh, from Las Vegas. And at that time, that, that same day while we were performing was a Biggie Smalls funeral procession that went out in front of the Apollo. So, you know, that whole East Coast, West Coast thing was still going on. And as soon as, as, soon as Steve said, like, we walk out, all the girls go nuts and rush the railings and shit because it's like a three-level theater, which was crazy. looks a lot bigger than it is. Uh, uh, it looks a lot bigger on television than it actually is in real life. It's very tight in there, but it's really stacked on top of each other. And all the girls rushed. They rushed the railings and shit. And then Steve Harvey's like, yeah, Las Vegas. Dudes was like, whoa, <laughs> get y'all West Coast motherfuckers out of here. 
So, uh, you know, they throw that in with the band fucking up and everything was really chaotic that we started fucking up because we didn't get in tune with the band. And uh, it was it was a sight to see, man, and, and not one to hear, definitely. But uh, uh, we made it through somehow, some way, without the uh, Sandman coming on. We thought that uh, we thought we heard the siren at one point in time. We watched the video back so so many times, but our uh, David Wallace, who was still managing us at the time, we figured he was probably backstage holding the Sandman at gunpoint, like you better not take your ass out on that stage, motherfucker. Let them finish their song. But uh, yeah, we should have been booed off at that juncture, but uh, we got a lot better. And uh, you know, shit. Uh, what I what I remember the most is just that. You know, we worked really hard and diligently at putting together a really good product, a uh, really good sound. We could sing a cappella very well after that. We wrote a lot of good songs together. And uh, when everything went to shit, it was just, you know, it was just kind of over some selfish selfish decisions and, and selfish motives. And uh, not everybody was, was playing for the team like, like we all thought. So, you know... Uh, Things ended up breaking down, and the group broke out, broke up. Uh, we got one record deal during that time, but several offers for others that we that never fruitioned into anything because, you know, shit. Uh, we had a, a reputation of, of, of bouncing around from one management team to another, and folks didn't really like that. So, once we kind of started acting like grown men and made some positive decisions about how we were going to move our business forward together as partners after that because we were all partners in a business endeavor together uh some of the partners made some decisions that were uh, not only counterintuitive but were also against what the four of us decided like basically at the round table that we were going to do and uh you know it led to the uh to the disbandment of, of what i think was one of the greatest uh undiscovered vocal groups of all time like you know we styled ourselves quite a bit after the likes of New Edition and Boys to Men and a little bit of Jodeci mixed in with that. Like, it was just, we thought it was dope, and it was dope for a while. A lot of, a lot of folks were digging it, but never just got that, never got that major release that we were seeking. And uh, I think if we would have stayed together a little bit longer or made some different decisions, uh, you know, that, that would have shook for us. So it was unfortunate, but it taught us a lot of things. And uh, it put all of us, it continued to put all of us uh, in the positions and on the paths that we've all, you know, been successful and unsuccessful on since that time was, was from our knowledge and experiences in that group. So um, it, it it had its bittersweet moments, just like anything else in life, I think. Of course, thank you, Matt, for bringing up the um, Apollo. Cause I, I don't want to ask about that because I figured it might be a little bit embarrassing. Oh, it was embarrassing. <laughs> it was yeah. embarrassing, but you know, shit. That's part of what that that's part of what. Like I said, like like we said about ten minutes ago, man. That's you know, sometimes you have an off night. That was one of our really off nights. You know what I'm saying? And it it just happens. You know, shit shit just wasn't right, and things weren't aligned the correct way. So it doesn't it shouldn't stop anybody. You know what I'm saying? That's one of the things I took into any audition with me from that point on was like, I'm not here for these people to tell me I'm a singer. I know I'm a singer. I'm here for these folks to possibly give me a record deal. If they don't, I'm going to keep doing what I do, which is perform and get paid to do it. 
Motherfuckers ain't paying me to go sing songs and shit, not knowing even who I was at the time because I'm bad. And so I, I had a different confidence level. If they say no, it has nothing to do with my talent. I'm just probably not what they're looking for and what they need right then. You know? Yeah, no doubt. Right. So the, the video's on YouTube, and then just you kind of reiterating the story and bringing the story to light makes a ton of sense. Just in, you know, knowing how, you know, how you want American, I was like, yeah, you know, watching my dad, man, this dude can sing. So I was like, maybe, I was like, hopefully he tells me about that. I'm not going to ask, you know, again, yeah. not, not my business. Yeah. But, oh, no, it's all good. About the, um, the mics and everything and not having the the sound check and, and all that, I mean, it makes perfect sense because I've heard that numerous times to where, um, Artists giving interviews, they say it's like, yeah, if you don't do that sound check, it can be the kiss of death. Because you oh can't man, rely. especially when you're working live. Oh man, yeah. like we weren't, we weren't. They wouldn't let us use no, no, uh, no, what they call a TV track where you got background vocals and the actual music, but no leads, yeah. and everybody just sings their leads. They wouldn't let you use that because they couldn't license, they couldn't pay for the licensing of the music, but you can replay that shit live. And our downfall as musicians. I can't even really blame the band for that, even though they changed the key, Ray Chu and the crew. Uh, you know, they're still musicians. Like, they, I'm sure they had a lot of other songs to learn, so it's not like they just locked it in, especially after 30 minutes. But our job, we should have been on our job, and we should have noticed that they changed the key, and we should have been able to adjust to that. Uh, and so, you know, not doing a sound check, uh, a, like a good, solid sound check can be, like your friend told you, the kiss of death especially in a live band situation. Like, if you don't get that sound check, bro, you just, it, it could, it's, man, it can be really terrible. It really can. But then when you do a sound check, you could be sounding just halfway decent and everything sounds like magic because they got all the levels straight and everybody's on the same accord. Everybody's on the same page. People know what they're, what they're reminded anyway about what key they're supposed to be playing in just before that gig. So, you, you know, that's, uh, sound checks are key. They're crucial, and we did we didn't get a good one. We didn't get one at all. We got a little thirty minute rehearsal backstage, and everybody's like, "All right, cool, we got it, we got it, everybody's got it, all right, cool." And we get out there, and they, they didn't, so we should have. So I don't blame Ray Two and the crew for that part. Uh, that was on envy, you know what I'm saying? That was our lack of musicianship, basically, where we should have been able to make that change. But the whole starting early and shit like that, and then kind of kind of being thrust in that, it, it was more like a tin can, like a tiny-ass tin can, but the, the stage, the theater stage, it wasn't like, it looks huge on TV, but you get in there and it feels like everybody's on top of you. The stage is tiny, the the room is tiny, but it's tall, and all that ruckus and shit in there, like, we had never experienced anything like that. Like, it's like, it's like taking off the floaties that you learned to swim in for the first time and going to jump in the fucking deep end like a dumbass. It's not the same thing as the shallow end with floaties. You know what I'm saying? The Apollo was like, my goodness, but we needed that, and it and it and it 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 forged us. You know what I'm saying? It made us tough, and it made us realize that, like, you know, shit, we got to get better. We gotta we gotta put in more work, and we did. We put in a shitload of work, man. We did we did a lot of work. We just could never catch the right break that involved all four of us. There was a lot of breaks offered to to us individually, including myself, from different entities different companies but no, you know nothing that was ever fully for the four of us outside of that one independent record deal that we had that actually brought us to california in the first place 
Shout out to Bobby Graham, rest his soul. He's the one that brought us to California and got us that record deal. So looking back, did you have any idea that Neil will become the superstar he is today? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we were all doing it for. I, I, I foresaw each one of us to collectively, number one, being a super group and, and a super, you know, group, and then each one of us individually also being a, a superstar solo artist after that. I mean, it was kind of like the, the blueprint. You know, you do the group, then you break off, you do solo careers. You know, that was the whole game plan. So I, I, I never, once we really started figuring out what and who Envy should be and the type of professionalism and talent that we should be displaying on the stage after that, we quit adding homeboys to the mix, you know, people that we just wanted to hang out with. We started adding and keeping people that were actually musically gifted, talented, and inclined, you know. And, and what we ended up with was the four of us for the majority of the time, myself, Neo, uh, who was not Neo at the time, he was Schaefer, but I just say Neo for identification purposes for the audience right now. Uh, me, Neo, Solomon Ridge, and uh, Ray Blaylock. It was the four of us for the, for the longest, and we just, we had a dope chemistry. There was a lot of intangible things that, you know, would have been cool to play off of how the media used to play things back then because there wasn't a lot of, uh, if any at all, social media type shit going on. So, you know, there were just different things that we we came up with about ourselves that we could give any type of label PR department to, to funnel out to, uh, you know, magazines, little, little heartthrob magazines that all the little girls read and shit about us and little quirks and different things. Like, we w we went through the whole gamut, man, just – so, uh, you know, to answer your question, yeah. I mean, I, you know, he's always been a talented songwriter. Uh, we've all always been talented songwriters. Uh, he's been uh, – uh, he's a talented singer. We've all been talented singers. So uh, his career was one in which that uh, we all envisioned would happen, but through the uh, through the processes – of the group. And quite frankly, it, it's, that's still how it worked out in, in, in reality, but it didn't work out with all four of us. It just worked out with a connection that, that we all four got hooked up with that, you know, some decisions were made to, to, for him to go and do his thing uh, that, that weren't inclusive of, of everybody because uh, there were some loyalty ties to another entity that was already working with us who was, uh, Jamie Jones from All for One, and uh, he had gotten us a deal for the four of us uh, as uh, a group at Atlantic Blitz Records, which he had, uh, of course, ownership in part of that situation, but he had been uh, producing uh, the material we had been putting together for four or five months at the time for free, putting in you know his time away from his family and, and providing his resources for us to do that. And uh, the guys that uh, Neo ended up going with had actually, you know, fucked us over in the past. They said they were going to do some things that they didn't do that we were seriously counting on that they lied to us about. And that's not my description of it. That's my acknowledgement of the facts. That was actually Neo's description of it when uh, we came to the crossroads of who to work with. Uh, Jamie Jones, do we keep working with Jamie Jones, who's, who's been showing that he believes in us, obviously. He got us this deal. He's been letting us, you know, use his studio to record this, this music that we're doing. 
uh, or do we go fuck with the guys that we all decided were already liars and, and it fucked us over and are now only interested in us because we're back in Los Angeles again, no thanks to them, and we've managed to work up interest in our music careers again without their help. So now they want to be attached to it and cash in on it. And for me, as a person of integrity and loyalty to these other three motherfuckers, my business partners, that was that was an easy question to answer. That was an easy note. We're not fucking with them. We're going to stick with Jamie. And, you know, for Neo, apparently it wasn't an easy note because, uh, you know, they were offering ten grand at first. We all denied them. And uh, we told Jamie Jones, hey, these guys are – guys are back in our lives again they're trying to trying to basically draft us you know or, or trade us from you basically and jamie's like look he was that's why i still respect jamie to this day and i still deal with jamie jones to this day because he always kept it 100 percent honest with us regardless of his of the way it impacted his interest in the situation so he's like look man if that's what the way you guys want to go you guys can go that way he's like but i'm gonna tell you the ten thousand dollars he's talking about giving y'all that's not just off GP, like just because they like just because they like you. He said California law requires that any production company that places you under a production deal, whether you're a ten member band or a one person rap or rap act, they have to pay you under California law. And this is back in the day, nine thousand dollars for the year to hold you, to to have rights to you. You know what I'm saying? He's like, so they're giving you an extra grand. That's cool, but they have to do that. He's like, they're making it seem like. You know, they're doing it just because they know y'all need some money. So Schaefer was the main one. Neo was the main one. He's like, yeah, man, fuck that. Fuck that. We don't, you know, we can't deal with that. They still lying. We can't deal with that. We told him no. These cats come back. He's like, man, we'll give y'all 20 G's, man, if y'all come with us. And we don't even need the whole group. Whoever want to come can come. Whoever don't want to come, they can stay where they at. Man, brought that back to the table. Me and Ray was like, no. Solomon and Schaefer was like, yes. The group split up. They went that way. There was already some underlying issues anyway with these cats because apparently Neo had been signing some contracts with them behind the rest of our back to do uh, uh, solo songwriting projects and artist projects that one of our other uh, production partners who was helping us create the entirety of the record with Jamie, his name was Romeo uh, John, not Romeo Johnson, that's the, uh, no, his name is Romeo Johnson, but it's not the Romeo Johnson vocal coach from The Voice. He's just a, uh, uh, he's a producer that looks damn near like this dude, but uh, he produced a couple of songs that were going to go on that record as well, and he confronted us with some paperwork that Neo had signed behind our back, but was trying to give, he acted like we all did something wrong. He We were in the back room studios, and, um, in uh, was it Glendale, California, which used to be part and be owned by uh, Brian McKnight, and then uh, Romeo owned his part of the studio, and, and somebody else owned another one. I think it was DJ Battlecat owned another uh, part of the rooms. But uh, Romeo cornered us in the back room for what, the the room that the studio is named after, with these two big ass like bodyguards of his blocking the only exit in, and, uh, you know, the only exit in or out of that room. And he's like, so you motherfuckers been signing contracts behind our back trying to break deals and break bread while we out here working for y'all niggas for free. And we're we're looking at each other, including Neo, we're looking at each other sitting on the couch like, what the fuck is this motherfucker talking about? You know what I'm saying? Because none of us is signing shit. 
He's playing along with it. He's looking at it like, oh, man, what's you talking about? Me, uh, Romeo said, oh, you motherfuckers don't know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? He takes the he takes a contract out of his back pocket, not not like folded up, but like it was like in his back waistband, and throws it on the table in front of us. Now, I was the youngest in the group, but I was the one that they always sent in to uh, look over and or negotiate any of our contracts that we had with any kind of label deals or managers or, or clubs when we were getting bookings and shit. So they looked at it, it was like, what's it say? I picked it up and started reading it. It's a contract with Neo on it. You know what I'm saying? It's a contract with Neo on it. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm like, I look at him, and he's got his head down, tucked, like tail between his legs type situation. The other guy, Ray and Solomon, they're like, what does it say? I'm like, man, read it. It's, he knows what it says. As I pass it to him, he's like, man, Neo, he's like, man, fuck this shit. I got to do what the fuck I got to do for me and my shit. My shit, you motherfuckers don't work. So now it's all about him. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm turning down shit from Monica and Dallas Austin to do a solo, to do a duet with Monica, but not with the group. You know, I'm turning down shit like that because he, as the oldest and the other two, they're like, no, nah, no, nah, if they don't want the whole group, it's, they they got it's got to be everybody, man. Can't just be one of us. And I'm like, yeah, fuck that. Wow. Yeah. Austin, Dallas Austin is like, nah. It, she wants to do Monica, and this is when she was doing Brandy's Boy Is Mine. You know what I'm saying with her? Like, yeah, like, she, was, she was yeah, she was hot, hot. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, nah, man, I can't. I'm sorry, Mr. Austin, Dallas Austin, fucking hottest producer at the time. I can't do the duet because you, you guys don't want to do it with the group. And we had all sung for her, her brother. She came out of Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles with C-Murder and her, because she was dating him at the time from No Limit, and, uh, and her brother and her mom, and her, I don't know if it was her mom or her aunt, but just her family and C-Murder. And uh, we'd have to sing for him and, he didn't want us to sing. He was like, nah, fuck that. We can't, we can't, can't stop. Sorry. Monica stopped him and everybody was like, no, no, no. Y'all go ahead. Y'all sing something. What y'all want to sing? And let us sing. So we sang. He, he was like, go ahead and sing something, little niggas. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, mad as fuck. We sang. They was like, cool, clap for us. They went and got in the limo. Limo starts pulling off. Her brother leads out the back limo window. It's like, yo, come here. So we all start walking up. He's like, nah, nah, homeboy in the white T-shirt. That's me. I walked up. He's like, y'all, you know, call this number tomorrow, man. Good job. Y'all keep doing your thing, man, but make sure you call this number tomorrow. Ask for the guy on the, on the paper. It's Dallas Austin's number. And it's before him and Monica got married or had kids or any of that, obviously, if she's dating C. Murray at the time. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I called Dallas Austin the next day. We're all huddled around the phone. He's like, he, he answers, and I tell him who I am. He's like, yeah, man, Monica told me about you, bro. She she really loves your voice, man. She wants to do a duet with you. And so I'm like, oh, shit, y'all. Monica wants to do a duet with us. And, it, you know, the three of them and me, we all like, oh, you know, we think we about to, like, we just hit. It's like, you know, a party on our end. And Dallas is still on the phone. He's like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. What's, what, who, who's we? What, what's this we? I said my group. Envy, like we we sang for her last night. This, you know, brother told me call this number. He said, nah, nah, bro. She didn't say nothing about no group. She, you Corey Clark, right? Said, yeah. She wants to do a song with you. She didn't say no group. 
I respect the fact that you got loyalty for your boys is what the conversation boiled down to. Go on ahead and talk to them. Give me a call back immediately and let me know what you're going to do. So we talked for about 10 minutes, and Neo, oldest of the group, main one, and he was like, nah, man, fuck that. They don't want all of us. They can't have none of us. We in this shit together. We a team. We this. We brothers. We that. So I'm in a race, same thing. I was like, yeah, you're right. That's right. That's how I felt. It wasn't like he talked me into that, but he just reminded me of it. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, Mr. Awesome, can't do it, bro. If it's not going to be everybody, I can't do it. He's like, man, I respect your loyalty and your integrity, bro. You know, I wish y'all a lot of luck, and that was it. And he fast forward back to that backroom situation that I was just telling you about where he's like, man, fuck that. It's about me. And I, I felt like punching him and letting somebody punch me for letting these motherfuckers make me believe that it was about us, you know. So needless to say, it was just a lot of shady shit that was happening when I thought we was a team and I was going out getting us television shows, performances, uh, getting us as many different deals as possible. And uh, motherfuckers was benefiting off all that. We was getting writing deals and shit to write songs for other major acts on Hollywood records and stuff. And uh, only to turn around and kind of get, get, uh, get, you know, get stabbed in the back essentially. So the other two cats, he still kind of deals with them every now and again. And when he wants, when he wants somebody to fold his laundry or drive him around town or some shit like that, two of the other most talented songwriters in the fucking world that the motherfuckers ever been around in his life were other singers. And you got them folding your clothes and doing your laundry and shit. Uh, one of them, one of them alleges that he's stolen about five songs from them, put them out without their permission and, uh, without paying them at all or, or even giving them credit so they can go to another camp and say, hey, I, I wrote this song on Neo's hit record, you know, pay me X amount of dollars to write for your artist. He can, can't even do that. So if that's, to be, if that's true, then it makes sense why he hasn't come to me with none of that shit because I was a motherfucker that they were sending in to block that shit when we were all teenagers. So I'm, I, if I wasn't going for it then, I'm damn sure not going to be going for it now. And if that's what's called help, then, you know, I'm, I guess I'm glad he never helped me out. You feel what I'm saying? So it didn't end on a good note. And, you know, er, er, you hear people say that folks remember that the, the, the way things are, the way they want to and shit like that. I, I'm not that type of individual. I remember things based on the facts that took place and dates and times and shit and, and, uh, and, and uh, choices that was made for certain things. Like, you know, that's... That's not hard to do to stick to reality, but, you know, the fantasy shit comes up when a motherfucker has to make themselves feel better about that, the, the choices they've made or the actions and paths that they've taken. You know, I, I can sleep at night, and I'm still, a lot, I'm still good friends with, uh, and look at myself in the mirror, and I'm still good friends with a lot of the people that I've done uh, musical endeavors with and I've engaged upon musical endeavors with, and that's a testament to my character. You know, and those that showed themselves to be not just not in my favor, but kind of actually out against me, have slowly worked themselves out of my life, you know. But uh, you don't keep friends and, and, and people in your life for 15, 20 years at a time because you're a bad person, you know. So I, I don't gauge success on how other people have been successful, I'd say that. Uh, I know that in terms of visibility, and and uh, 
and uh, record industry success. I've only, I'm only a certified gold recording artist. He's a certified platinum artist. So in terms of how the game is played, he's been more successful, you know, uh, as far as the game is played. But uh, at the end of the day, I kind of feel like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still fresh because I wasn't ever really out there like that uh, in, in such a way that, that people had a, a solo career for me to judge. And uh, I believe it's a whole new generation of people now that I can do what it is I do and, uh, and receive some receptive uh, feedback and responses and, and uh, still be selling records, doing it my way and working for myself and knowing that I don't have to sell millions of records to break even or, or uh, to pay somebody else. You know, I can sell 50,000 units a year with, Ain't nothing, and sell it. Sell at fifty thousand albums a year, ten bucks a piece is five hundred k. I got to split that up with the cat that produced the album, and I write the majority of the stuff. And anybody else that features with me, that's that's not bad. So, uh, yeah, that you know that 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 Barry Manilow situation led to me creating that group, which led to me doing American Idol, which led to me becoming a certified gold reporting artist, which led to me. Uh, you know, touring and doing different things that I I'd been doing since a teenager anyway, since anybody knew who I was. So I kind of feel like I still got a a, a life ahead of me in my music and, and what I'm doing, you know, and, and some folks are they they were out there so much that now that's you know, they gotta they gotta figure out something else to do. I'm still doing music. You know? Yeah. And we haven't even got to the meet of the interview yet, man, but you gave me like a Great story. We haven't even really got deep into your uh, career, you know, a bit further down the road. My bad. All right, so, so while you're in Envy, you had a chance to open up for acts such as Maya and Destiny's Child. Do you feel it's a good idea for local acts, whatever city they may be in, to try and get an opening slot anytime a major tour hits their town? Absolutely, but uh, I, I'm 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 for it. And then there's a there's a burgeoning new type of practice it's been around for the last couple of years but there's this new practice where you know a lot of these a lot of these folks i can't really say new okay uh uh i'll just say what i'm gonna say and then I, and then i'll hit it with the caveat after that uh there's there's basically a new practice where folks want you to pay to be to work essentially you know in the in the music industry entertainment industry especially they want you to pay, <clears throat> excuse me they want you to pay to go to work there's no other industry in the world where this is allowable or that that it occurs in. Okay, that's just ridiculous to me that people, uh, promoters, for instance, promoters, when, when I was being taught about the music industry and when I was growing up in the music industry as a, as a teenager and performing myself, promoters never hit us up to pay to get on a show. And I, I have to attribute that now in hindsight, to the fact that we were an independent act. You know what I'm saying? We, they knew we didn't have any backing, but they knew we were just fucking dope vocalists, so they wanted to have us on the show. And they were paying us. They were paying us to come and do a whole hour set of just covers and our own music and whatnot. We would go up there and we would sing whatever fuck we wanted to. Cause they, but the, the, the point is they were paying us to go to work. We weren't paying them to get on these shows. Uh, now, what I know is a practice in the mainstream music industry that the record labels and companies, they will pay 
the other company or another the other record label or another production company to get their brand new artist onto a larger artist bill to open for that artist. They they they've been doing that, uh, but it's you know that's when I believe that people are aware of the fact that those artists and those companies have the budget to do so. Uh, when you were yeah. when you were up and coming and you were talented, when I was doing it coming up, they would give you opportunities to open, but it was based on your talent and what it is, whether or not you would fit in with the act that you were trying to open up for. So in our instance, we did open up for Maya. Uh, we opened up for John B. We opened up for Crazy Bone, KRS-One, Mad Lion, Destiny's Child, Jagged Edge. You know what I'm saying? Like we, Those are all gigs that I got us either directly or through somebody that I went and talked to who had the hookup for us to get the gig. That was all stuff that I did for us. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it was a good idea to do it because it did make us visible and uh, we didn't have to pay to do it. Nowadays, promoters, they if you're a promoter, you should be able to throw a party where in whatever city it is that you're in, you're supposed to have enough pull in your own city where when you throw a party, no matter who the fuck is playing, people are coming to your your event because you're a dope event thrower. You're a dope promoter. You They know you're going to throw a good party regardless of who's playing. You know what I'm saying? But nowadays, yeah. these promoters want artists to not only pay to play, like basically pay to get on their event, but also to sell tickets to that event and get people in the door that the promoter is supposed to be bringing in the door, but the promoter feels like because he has a deal with the venue that that's the only work he's got to do. And at that point, he should get a part of the bar. He should get a part of the, or if not all of the tickets and door sales, and you should have to go sell the tickets and perform while he's chilling or she's chilling because, you know, it's female promoters too, but that's bogus to me. That's That means that you're not a good promoter because, A, you don't got people coming to your party unless unless it's somebody that's hot on the radio right now. And to me, that's not a solid promoter because if I know you throw a good party, I'm coming to your party. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But if, you, if your parties are only hot because you got, you know, what's hot right now there, then that means that you're, you're, uh, you're uh, for lack of a better term, you're basically the flavor of the moment. You happen to have a good artist that everybody happens to like, but... If you throw a party next week with somebody that's not an A-list artist, ain't nobody coming to your event. And that's why some of these clowns is out here calling themselves promoters, making artists sell tickets and do all this other crazy shit. Like, artists have to wear so many hats nowadays that it, it's, it's completely taken away from the art of, of what it is we're creating because music is art. It's, you know, they got music business, but in order to have a business about it, you have to have the art in place and you got all these artists now that are that are having to wear so many hats and worry about so many irrelevant bullshit things that it's it's kind of made it to where the 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 industry is very very uh, uh what are those stores called the Spencer stores uh Spencer Gifts in the malls they're called uh not it's very novelty now like everybody wants you to see what they're doing on Instagram and everybody wants you to see what they're doing here and there and nobody's really doing uh, nobody's really really co- uh, uh, creating art. There are some artists that do it, and they find creative ways to integrate their social media into it, but the mainstream formula is you've got to be on 
You got to be on these social media platforms. You got to have these followers. You got to sell these amount of tickets. You got to do this. You got to do that. It's all ones and zeros now. There's no more development. There's no more love. There's no more soul in it. And so everything sounds very cold and crass when you hear it on the radio and when you're creating it with people that aren't really interested in the create, creative part of it. They're interested in what it's going to bring to the bank account. You know, Michael Jackson had a lot of records that weren't thriller. You know what I'm saying? And, and weren't bad and, and, and history and Stevie Wonder and Gladys Knight. I mean, Gladys Knight had 54 records. Who, what type of artist you know has 54 records nowadays? Nobody. You know what I'm saying? And that's because they, they were putting out records constantly, creating and, and getting better. They weren't trying to just hit one one sound or one, you know, flavor of the year. You know, they were just constantly just creating good music, and some of that shit hit and some of that shit didn't. But it grew their body of work, and it made them better performers. And all of that is missing nowadays. So I'm not the type of person or artist, I should say, that, that engages in too much of that. I get on social media when I feel like it, and I, I utilize it to promote shows when I have them, but I'm not using it to, to get a bunch of followers because, really, followers' attention doesn't equal success. It's just attention. If anybody knows that, it's me. Like, you know, you can have 3 million followers, but if you don't got 3 million motherfuckers that are buying your, your product, then who gives a damn if you got three million followers? You might get a couple of good, uh, couple of good, uh, what they call those, uh, promo deals or, or uh, endorsement deals or something. But that's only going to last for so long, you know. Uh, what what is going to keep people coming back year after year, ten years down the road, fifteen years down the road? Good music, good art. So I, I find myself in a position. I said all that to say. I find myself in a position where. You know, I'm I'm still making music and making art the way I want to make it, and uh, I've had some successes. I've had some some downturns in my life and career, just like everybody else. But I'm still doing music and I'm still creating stuff and working for myself. I'm not a slave to anybody, I guess, is the thing. And I don't buy into uh, the current fads that's going on. You know, everybody will fall in line once your shit hits anyway, and it doesn't necessarily need to hit through any, any mainstream, uh, uh, any mainstream um, uh, uh, tailored or, or relegated type of fashion. Like, you don't have to do it the way the mainstream says it. If you just got something that connects with people, you don't really need anything except for a good team of people around you once something does take off to help you uh, 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 source out the right, companies to make sure that that product is successful and then also be the buffer in between you and those companies to make sure that you're not getting taken advantage of. And like I said, you ain't got to be doing Michael Jackson numbers. You ain't got to be selling millions of records. You can sell 50,000 records, 10 bucks a piece, and that's 500K, bro. That's, that's more than a lot of people make in three years, let alone just one year with 50,000. And, and that's, not, that's not becoming gold again. That's not moving major units, that's just doing what I know can work, you know, and, and being able to continue doing what I love, and I don't have to answer to nobody at the end of the day. I just got to do what I'm contractually bound to do because I work for myself, and as long as I do that, then we're good. Yeah, and I, and I totally uh, get that. I'm like, you know, two things that I kind of always talk about, and, you know, with artists with other people and everything, I mean, I get it, you know, it's 2020, social media is needed and all that, 
But for me, not even being in the industry and just being a, um, from the consumer standpoint, social media to me has kind of ruined the art of entertainment because now it's like, you know, when we were coming up, right, for example, the stand-up comedy show, you had to wait to see the jokes, and it was a treat. It was an experience. But now people go out here, they tape stuff and everything just to get those likes, and you're taken away from the art of the joke. So a prime example is um, I also review stuff, you know, you know, it's part of my site. So I just reviewed Patton, Patton Oswalt's Netflix special, and I purposely yeah. avoided search for anything that he's done, you know, so the jokes will be fresh to me, so I can give him a Absolutely. proper review. But it's like, you Absolutely. know, why go in here and try to see something? And I'm like, you know, and on occasion when I go to a show, like I will share something if it's worth sharing. Like, you know, I'll go live, but, you know, I don't sit there the entire time for like two hours trying to take the whole, you know, the whole concept. I think that's just asinine and kind of ridiculous. But, like, one of my favorite artists is Eric Roberson. So whenever Eric does a show, he does a thing where he'll make up a song on the spot with words from the audiences. So stuff like that, you know, I'll I'll take because I was gonna be different. But I'm not gonna sit there and like YouTube somebody's entire concert. It's just asinine. It's it's unfair to the artist, and for us as consumers, kind of taken away from us enjoying the show. That's just a little tangent, but you know, that's no, easy no, no. That. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You you hit the nail on the head with it, and and I, and good on you. For for handling your journalistic uh, uh, canons of of ethics like that, you know, you you want to make it fresh to you because you want to give an honest review. Yes. You don't want to be jaded or biased by other, what other people have to say by it, you know. And I, and I, I think that's, uh, that's a testament yeah. to your abilities to do your job, not just oh, yeah. well, but the right way. You know, whether you like the act or not, or whether you give it a scathing review or a raving review. You went about it the, the right way, man, and that's 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 going to take you far because somebody else is going to notice that about you besides me, and they're going to want your honest take and your honest opinion on stuff, and because they appreciate your your honest approach to it. Oh yeah, and that's why, bro. You know, whenever like I've seen Kevin Hart numerous times, I've seen Cat numerous times, I've seen Tiffany Haddish. I don't get mad at comics when they say, you know, you got to lock your phone up because you know they don't want you to get out. So, you know, by yeah. all means. Um, I I understand why you're doing that. Now I kind of get it from like a um, I kind of get it from the standpoint where you know if you're a parent and you have a sister, something goes wrong, you get a phone call, like yeah. But in the same token, you know you paid all this money to go see people live. The least you can do is give them an hour of your time, you know, disconnect social media and focus on their show. That's just that's, that's my personal my personal things I see it. But uh, moving on, so let's get into American Idol stuff. So. Well, I, I was going to add to that last of that thing before you got into the idol shit. I was going to uh, just add one more statement. Uh, Go ahead. They did, uh, I don't know if it was VH1 or the CW, but there was, uh, uh, I think it was this, I don't know if it was Unsung or something like that. or It's either Unsung or it was uh, uh, behind the scenes, one or two, but Neo actually addressed why our group broke up. And I, I want to say it was a thing that was recently on the CW. Uh, maybe within the last year, and they asked him why the group broke up and, and yada, yada, yada. And he gave the most, like, 
generic bullshit reasonings I'd ever heard in my life. Like he actually, uh, but what he left it off on was that I was always late to stuff, and he didn't like being late, and he couldn't take it no more, so he had to leave the group. For me, that's like a very generic. Oh, thank you. That's a very generic explanation uh, when you've got when you've got uh, uh, like such detailed statements from me about what took place and what happened. He didn't address none of that. He he just said, uh, you know, Corey was always late, so I couldn't take it no more, and I had to leave the group. You know, so if anybody else besides myself has the ability to discern bullshit when they see it and hear it. I'd like for them to take a look at that program when they can. I, I want to say it's unsung, and it definitely was on the CW. Somebody called me to tell me about it and asked me if I'd heard it or seen it, and I hadn't. So when I looked it up and saw the interview, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of funny. But uh, moving yeah, right along, that was my uh, last little part. Yeah, huge fan of his. So the wife, it might have been something on TV one where he did a little life after thing. I mean, I mean, just not yeah, to Yeah, that's person. what it was. Yeah, that's what a TV one. I said CW is yeah, TV life one. You're absolutely right. Life after. Yeah, so if you like that, any, um, just you know huh? the PR, the PR answer, and you probably just don't want to thank. But again, like you know, this is your interview. You're giving Timmy straight, no chaser. And you know, as I mentioned, you know, as a little um, disclaimer beforehand, you know, everybody that I've interviewed, I was so like, look, you know. I'm going to give it to you straight, no tracer, you know, in my interviews, because this is this person's testimony. It's his chance to tell his truth, whoever it yeah. is. And just, you know, speak, speak freely. Hell, like, you know, we're almost all in our damn 40s, if not all the people that I've interviewed. So as long yeah. as you don't say anything too, like, outlandish or too way, way off, you know, yeah. off the cusp that has nothing to do with the music, then, yeah, yeah. you know, I got to take it out. But... You know, if it's your truth and it's your it's your truth, it's your testimony. You were there. I, you know, I, I wanted to give you know I wanted to give folks like his take on it too. Without without you know basically saying how he felt, I wanted to just I observed him saying the same things that anybody that watched that TV One special watched. So I didn't want to leave off with just being like, yo, this is my take on it, and this is what I had to say. I wanted to offer what he had to say about it as well uh, as 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 scant as it was and uh and just kind of give everybody his take on it too and and you know I, I just think even from the from the uh the way that that both answers were approached and the answers that were given it, to me it, it's kind of clear who's bullshit and who's not once you get a chance to watch the tv one thing but uh i just didn't want to leave it off without putting putting out his words too like this what he had to say about me you know what I'm saying? And he he said some other things about me before that TV One shit where uh, John Murray and me, AOL, um, he was on AOL Black Voices just several years ago, like 2007, and uh, Neo was using me on, you know, if you look at his first album that came out with the DVD, he talks about me in a positive manner, positive light, the group and whatnot, the second album and all the, not all the interviews he was doing in magazines, but a lot of the major interviews he was doing in a lot of major magazines, he would always bring me up. And at that time, it was about, you know, him talking about I was in a group with Corey Clark that was on American Idol. About he was using that, you know what I'm saying? And then once he got out and got his own, established on his own two feet, he did an interview with John Murray, and John Murray was a mutual 
journalistic acquaintance of the both of ours who knew our past history together, and he asked him in the interview, he, you know, you get, he said, you got a thriving production company now, and you're signing new acts. He's like, you ever thought about signing, you know, your groupmate, Corey Clark? This is a written interview. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, he's like, Corey, you know, Corey, what, Neo, he's like, Corey, what do I say about Corey, man? Yeah, you know, he's, he's a really talented cat. He really is. Uh, but until he gets his personal issues together, I can't, I, I can't work with him, fuck with him, basically, you know? And uh, John was like, well, why is that? You know, like, what personal issues are you talking about? And he was like, the whole American Idol, Paula Abdul thing, you know, I can't really work with him until he gets that together. So... That was even before the TV One thing, and he was just kind of letting him know why he wouldn't work with me at the time. And uh, to, for me, it was just like, you know, for, uh, you know the, for, from growing up together and the type of shit that we shared together and the things that, the type of blood, sweat, and tears and battles we went through, if you ain't going to say something nice about a motherfucker that's supposed to be your brother, the last thing that I needed at that time was for him to go out and, and perpetuate that situation any further. You know what I'm saying? And, and and that put it to where, you know, I'm going down to Atlanta to meet with Tricky Stewart about uh, new projects that I'm trying to get going. And Tricky was hot on it at first, and he's like, oh, man, you know, if, if your boy Neo won't, won't deal with you, then, you know, how you expect us to deal with you? So it started having ramifications like that. And for me, I was, I was yeah. like, you know, if somebody would have asked me something about him and I knew that I wasn't engaging with him to maybe help shoot shoot my friend an opportunity that uh that I was capable of shooting him at the time. Uh, uh if I wasn't gonna do that, I'm damn sure not gonna throw no salt on your name and discourage other people from working with you. I'm I'm just not gonna say nothing other than, you know, he's a really talented cat like he did at first and then, you know, I wish him the best and leave it at that. But yeah, uh, no. you know, it it perpetuated this little blacklist and shit and it, it didn't seem accidental to me at all. You know what I'm saying? So it's just, it was just a lot of slights and shit that that, that took place. But I was still proud of him and, and what he accomplished and what he did. I still, you know, love his music. I went out and bought two of his first albums when it came out because even though I hadn't made it super big like that, I felt proud to have been involved with him and knowing that one of the four of us got out on our own accord and, and did something. You know, and I wanted to support that. He he, and the other guys, the other three, uh, Neo and uh, Solomon and Ray, I made sure that the three of them were part of my first and only uh, album to date that I put out through Universal back in 2005. He's on there writing, singing background vocals. Uh, Solomon and Ray, they're doing the same. So, you know, I, I was always trying to include those guys in whatever I was doing and how I was doing it, especially when it came in, uh, when it came to music. And uh, it just, you know, it wasn't the same for whatever reason with him. But I, I can't attribute it to something that I unnecessarily did. And and speaking on what he has said publicly about me uh, uh, in the last year and a half, apparently, you know, he didn't feel like helping me at this juncture. If it wasn't about the Paula Abdul American Idol shit that he said earlier, then it, it's about me being late all the time and he didn't want to deal with it. So whatever, it all just sounds like super flouse and superficial bullshit reasonings to me about about why you know you, uh, you don't uh, uh, engage in in uh, helping your the other guys that you know uh, we're helping you get to where you are in, in a sense. It's not like we 
wrote the songs for him that he's doing. I'm not saying that by any means, but just him being in the place that he was when he took that opportunity was was him standing on the shoulders of the work that the four of us did together that I I basically was managing and bringing to us because we never really had a manager after David Wallace and Bobby Graham. That was, that was you know, consistent with us, so it was just always me. Uh, people ask about it, and uh, they say, you know, I'm proud of, of his accomplishments, and I still listen to his music today. He's got good songs, and I'll never say that he's not talented because of the the personal fallout that we've had, and I'll never bash his, his capabilities or his talent because that has nothing to do with his character as a friend and as a man, you know what I'm saying, or his integrity. That's a completely different issue that I'm capable of, of separating and making a distinction about, you know what I'm saying? So I'll, I'll always support his music, but I don't support his tactics and, and how he's, how he's uh, garnered uh, the things that he's garnered and, and some of the people that he's had to step on and throw away to do that. Tune into Reviews and Done next week for part two of this interview.